0: All right. Well, hey, <clears throat> good morning, everybody. Welcome to Calvary Church. Your stomachs are probably growling since like 2.30 in the afternoon, your body time, or I don't even know what time it is. But uh, if I've not met you, my name Peter, one of the folks on staff, and we're so glad that you're here. If we can help answer any questions about who we are or <clears throat> what we're trying to do or serve your family in any way, we would love um, to do that. Two quick housekeeping things I'd like to make you aware of. Uh, the first is, and we've talked about this for a while, but We have uh, an app, right? A Calvary Church app that our tech teams worked really hard on, and I'd love to make you aware of that. There's a little dealio behind me where you can see where to download it. You can also get to it through our website. Uh, But really, we want to continue to resource all of us as a church with stuff that's helpful as we press into God's Word. And so... Uh, Through the app, you'll have an ability to do a lot of different things. It'll push different information to you about what's going on in our ministry, so you'll find out what's going on with our students, with our kids, with the guys, with girls, uh, big all-church events. It's got a Bible, so that if you haven't yet downloaded a Bible on your mobile device, it'll be right through there. Um, You can stream the service live, and so if you just have a phone with you instead of uh, your computer or whatever, it's an opportunity to do that. And then also, what we've talked about, in the beginning of the year or when I got back from sabbatical is, man, we, we want especially in this Sermon on James, to provide resources to you to help you know what the Bible is about and grow in that. And so on the app, there's a way for you to take digital notes for every sermon. We have sermon points and there's some notes on there so that you can fill in, keep track along. And so if in five years... You want to know, like, what is James 4 about? Uh, It'll be one resource we have for you. So you can check out the app. We'd love to make you aware of that um, and hope it's uh, a useful to to you. Second thing we want to do is we talk a lot here at Calvary about um, being the aroma, the sweet aroma of Jesus in our community, right? We want uh, to represent God well and we want to serve people well and serve families well. And so uh, Thanksgiving is coming just thought I'd let you know that. You know, everybody's telling us Christmas is coming, but first there's this little deal called Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's coming, and historically, this time of year, we really want to use all the things and all the ways God's blessed us to be of a blessing to others. So I want to invite you uh, with us as a church. We have a great opportunity to serve people uh, here and around the world and in different places. And so a few different things that are out in the lobby that you can grab, that you can pick up, that you can help meet needs. The first is this, which is a little uh, put-it-together shoebox kind of thing. We partner with Operation Christmas Child. We have for years, and it's an opportunity for you and your family if you want. There's instructions. You can put this together. You can fill it with all sorts of variety variety of items, and then there's a little gospel message. And this literally gets sent uh, around the world um, to different people to try to show love and also to show a little bit of truth. And so there's information about there. You can grab it on the 21st of November. That's going to be the Sunday that we have a chance of the church to to bring all these items back uh, to then give them away. So this is an opportunity for you if that interests you. Or we have an opportunity. We have people that you know, uh, different friends or different family members or folks, neighbors that some of you have told us just have needs this time of year in terms of food or whatever. We partner with different ministries in the community who have already let us know of needs there for food. And so we have an opportunity to help meet some of those needs. And so as you leave, you'll not only see shoeboxes, but you will see. <clears throat> these amazing brown bags from Amazon.com that we purchased in bulk. And on these bags, we, we're going to do a few different things. One is just provide some food. There is a shopping list. And here's the plan, right? The first service got this, so I know you we, we'll be able to get this, right? On this shopping list, there are various food items for you to buy. What do you think you do with those food items and with this bag? Huh? <laughs> Yes, exactly. I thought I heard someone say, keep it. I'm like, no, you don't keep it. You go to your favorite supermarket of choice and you put what is on the bag. You purchase that. You put it in the bag and then you bring the bag back with these items and we're gonna have a different way for folks to collect it, right? If the bag doesn't say like pickled duck's eggs, We do not want you to put 17 cans of pickled duck's eggs in the bag, right? What the bag says, put the food back in it, bring it back on November 21st. If that isn't something you'd be interested in doing, we also have uh, tags out there. One says turkey. This is not for you to give to your significant other, right? Hey, babe, this is what I think of you. (laughs) Love ya. Right? This is... Guess what you do with this? If you pull one of these out, man, on the 21st, come back, bring back a turkey. Uh, Or we have opportunities for gift cards. And if you, this is a $10 gift card, if that's something you'd like to do, if you have the means to do it, no pressure, bring a gift card back. And on November 21st, we're going to tell you the ways that we're going to collect this. And it's going to be a great opportunity for us to to give those away to people, uh, people that you know. And people you even don't know in our surrounding uh, neighborhoods and really serve and show God's love. So we're excited about it. We'd invite you to be part of that. And then one other thing I want to make you aware of on the way out on your right, you're going to see a giving thanks board. And there's some white pieces of paper. And we just thought, man, it'd be great just to capture as a church what has God done in your life recently that you're thankful for. I think sometimes we don't have the opportunity to think about that. We, we, some of you are going to do it on Thanksgiving morning, right? Grandpa's going to say, <clears throat> I think it would be nice if we all shared something we're thankful for. And you're going to be like, oh, no, what am I thankful for, right? So maybe, like, maybe we should always be thankful people because God's given us a lot, even if we're going through hard times. And this is a way for us. You would write on here anonymously, throw it on the board, and then on the 21st we'll capture some of the things God has done and is doing in our church, and so we'd invite you to do that. So a couple of housekeeping things about um, the app and about our Thanksgiving service, and we're excited about the way to continue to meet needs um, in the community and throughout the community. And I'm excited about today's sermon, and uh, if you haven't yet had a cup of coffee... My analogy in the first sermon is, uh, man, it's like a a four-inch T-bone steak we're going to get into today. So, uh, I mean, I'll pray now, and you can get a free cup of coffee and caffeinate yourself because we're going to go, okay? Let me pray, and we'll jump into it. Father, I'm thankful for the reminder of the things we've sung of who you are, and we do take that for granted so many times, and you're glorious and majestic and overflowing with abundant and steadfast love to us, you give us grace, you've created us, you invite us into relationship with you, and those are remarkable truths that we should not take for granted. I pray as we open up your word uh, on this passage that um, is an important one, that you'll be with us, help it to be communicated clearly, help us to hear what you would have us hear from this time, Uh, and as always, Lord, we pray that Jesus is honored and is glorified, and it's in his name that we pray these things, amen. Well, today we are um, <clears throat> going to be talking about a relevant issue, right, an important issue that's, that's in our culture, and it's an important issue in terms of religion and, and, and spirituality. And if you would take some survey, and I've not taken this survey, but there are surveys out there that will tell you kind of what different people believe about religion. And when you, when you do look at those surveys, you do see that there's a certain segment of people who are like, you know what, I don't really believe there's a God. I don't believe there's anything bigger. I believe it's just us. I believe the story's over. There's another segment of people that when they're polled on their religious beliefs, they're like, yeah, you know, I believe there's a God, something bigger, but I think this is this is a one-way ticket. This is the only reality there is when my time here on earth is done, that's it. All this idea about heaven, about hell, thats that's nice, that's interesting, but I don't really believe that's true. And maybe this morning that's where kind of, We're all in different places on our spiritual journey, and maybe for some of you this morning, that's where you find yourself on the journey. But when you look at those surveys, or even just you having conversations with folks, there's this other segment, this other percentage of people who will say, yeah, you know what, I do believe that there is something bigger than me, and I do believe that when this story is over, when my life here on earth is done, that there's this experience after this, right? That there's something called heaven after that. I believe there's something bigger than me. I believe there's something called heaven that comes after this. And I also believe that what determines whether I get to enjoy that and experience that is how well I live my life. I believe that if I do more good than bad, that is actually really helpful and really important. And that's the barometer that this bigger being looks at to kind of determine whether I will get to have good stuff happen when I die or bad stuff, right? That's a common thought out there. And again, maybe some of you, that's kind of where you came in and you're like, yeah, when we have conversations with people of different faith traditions, that's kind of a big conversation because a lot of faith traditions, what we do and how well we live, that is the factor that determines whether that person within that faith tradition gets to spend eternity with whatever their concept of God is. This issue is an important issue, and it's a relevant issue, and it's it's one that if you get 10 minutes into a conversation on religion or spirituality with people, that we're going to stumble into. And it raises really good questions, questions like, well, do you need to do good things in order to get to heaven? what well, what if you say you believe in Jesus, you believe that story, but you don't do any good things, right? It raises the question of, What's the relationship between doing good works and having faith and and how does that all flow together? And so today, those are some of the questions that we're going to talk about as we walk into this. What we do here at Calvary Church, if you're visiting, we open up a book of the Bible and we go through it verse by verse, paragraph through paragraph, 90% of the time that's what we do. We're in a letter that Jesus' brother wrote to some Jewish Christians. A couple weeks ago, I said it was like Jesus' stepbrother. And some of you are like family tree experts. And you properly came up to me and you're like, Smith, like, we know you're not that smart. And this kind of confirms it. Because really, and then it's all this confusion. If this person married that, okay, I, I guess it's Jesus' half-brother. I don't know. Anyway, Jesus' brother of some relation is the person. And some of you are smiling because you're like, yeah, Smith, you really were a moron, right? Jesus' brother is the person that wrote this letter and he wrote it to Jewish Christians who are going through hard times and we're working our way through this letter. And last week I told you, I made this comment that James, this letter is really, really practical, right? There's all sorts of practical things. Most of the letter has to do with just just day-to-day practical real life living. We saw three of those last week when we saw James telling us about how it's important to act, that it's important for us to speak properly to each other. Gave the really practical advice that's important for us as Christians, for those of us who are Christians, to be sure that we're meeting each other's needs in practical ways. We saw the practical advice and command from Jesus' brother that we cannot allow any partiality or racism or discrimination or prejudice to be part of this, right? Really, really boots on the ground, practical, practical advice that there wasn't a lot of theology behind. And I said there's not a lot of deep theology in James. Well, today is the exception to that comment because today we're in the most theologically deep part of the book, right, where there's some really, really rich theology, Uh, Every commentator will say this is the most theologically uh, weighty part of James, and several commentators will say that actually some of the verses we're going to look at are some of the most theologically complicated verses in all of the New Testament, right? So today, it's like a four-inch thick New York strip. And we're going to bite into it. And we're going to chew on it, right? We're going to dig deep into what uh, God has for us in his word. And, and we're going to just spend some time digging through it and trying to understand it. And, and here's why. Have you ever driven to LaGuardia Airport and hit a pothole? Anybody? No matter what I do, <clears throat> whenever... I go to LaGuardia Airport. I always hit a pothole. I come over the Whitestone Bridge. I'm trying to honk at people because that's what I do, right? I like to honk. It's good for you. It's soothing. It lowers your blood pressure, <laughs> all right? So I'm, I'm honking. I beep it, but I honk because I love them. And so I'm trying to show Jesus' love to them. And no matter what, there's always this pothole. Here's what happens when you hit a pothole coming off the Whitestone Bridge on your way to LaGuardia Airport. Or that little Grand Central Parkway nonsense to LaGuardia. That is... That is purgatory. I don't know what it is. But, but here's what happens when you hit a pothole. Your car hits it, boom. And sometimes it's so jarring that it can mess with your alignment. And then your car starts to go crooked. And your car starts to take you in places you don't want it to be. Today's text is a potential pothole. Today's text, for those of us who are newer to Christianity or we've never studied it, or we're like, I've read it, but I don't really understand the Bible. Today's text has the opportunity for us to hit it. And then theologically, go in a direction that isn't in line with Scripture, and so I don't want that to happen. So we're gonna we're gonna dig into it. Our text today is James two, verses fourteen through twenty six. James two, verses fourteen through twenty six. If you got a Bible, you can open it up or open it up on your device. We got free Bibles out there. We have it in Spanish, Chinese translations, and English translations. Love for you to get one of those. And we're gonna unpack the text, and we're gonna see five observations about genuine saving faith. Five observations about genuine saving faith. And so, let me read it all, and then we're going to get our knives and forks and just kind of work through this piece by piece, bite by bite. Here's what Jesus' brother, half-brother, I think, says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see the faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture that fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness and was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That right there, that is a potential pothole. We can hit that thing and our alignment can take us in a way that, that is not the correct straight path. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That's a lot of stuff there. So, man, go home, figure it out, and we'll see you next week. Here, Here. When, here's the first thing. Lots of things. We'll get through it. Here's the first big overarching point that we see about genuine faith. Here's what James is doing. In all of this text, big umbrella deal that James is doing, he is contrasting genuine saving faith with something counterfeit. What James is doing is contrasting genuine saving faith with something counterfeit. Now, let me let me explain what I mean by saving faith, okay? Because... When you come to church, we like to throw out these buzzwords sometimes and not define them. We talk, like to talk about, I've been saved by my sin, right? Salvation. It's like, well, okay, well, let's, we need to know what we're talking about. Otherwise, that's just a code word that isn't understandable. Here is what the narrative, the true narrative, the true story of the Bible says. The, the true narrative of the Bible says that every single person in this room and in the world was born into sin and has committed sin. Every single person is born into sin and has committed sin, and God is real. There is a bigger being than us, and that God is just. And as a just holy God, that God can't tolerate sin. And so when I was born into sin, when you were born into sin, when we've chosen to sin, that sin places us in a place where a just God will need to punish us for running from him, from rebelling from him from choosing not to obey him. When we sin, when we're born into sin, we're in a place where we're subject to punishment from God, but God is also a loving God. And a loving God doesn't want to punish the people who he made and he adores, and so the solution is there's people like you and like me who have sin, sin who deserve punishment, but God in his love doesn't want to punish us, and so Jesus, God's son, came fully God, fully man, to be a substitute for us to stand in our place so that all of the punishment that we deserve, all the punishment I deserve for what I did wrong, in his love God says, I'm not going to punish you, Peter. Jesus says, Father, punish me instead of Peter. Jesus says for every single one of us sitting on a blue chair today or listening online, Jesus said, punish me instead of them. And then when we respond in faith to what Jesus says, has done for us, there is, Christian buzzword, salvation. Saved from sins, right? Because God says, okay, I am forgiving you, right? I'm willing because of your faith in Jesus as a substitute to take your sins and to give to us forgiveness. When I'm talking about saving faith, I, I, that's what I mean. When I say salvation, when I say saving faith, when I say saves, <clears throat> I want to make sure you understand what those terms mean and what James is doing. In this whole section, he's saying there's this, right, saving faith that is effective, and then there's something counterfeit, and then there's something fake that's not that. So so what does James want us to know about genuine saving faith? What's within that? Well, he tells us in this very first verse, in verse 14 of chapter 2, he says this. What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can such faith save him? Understanding kind of all of this, we got to dig into this first word, save, because we got to know what it is. Because some people say, oh, that really doesn't mean like not being punished for your sins and being separated from God. It just means like, "Ah, oh, your life will be a little better. And until we know what he's talking about here, we're never going to understand what he's trying to contrast and what he's trying to say James in chapter 1, Jesus' brother, talked about how the truth about Jesus has the power to save us from being punished for our sins. It would be very, very strange for James, just a few paragraphs later, to have a different meaning of the word. This word in the New Testament does mean many things. Sometimes when you see the word save, it means like you're going through a trial and you're saved from the trial, right? You get a flat tire because of the pothole. AAA comes along and saves you. Maybe I should work for AAA. These guys are cool, man. They just show up and do stuff. The next part that sometimes save means in the Bible is this idea of you're, you're developed more like Jesus. You're being sanctified. You're being improved. But most uses in the New Testament, when it's talking about saved, it means you're not guilty anymore. You're not guilty anymore, you've been forgiven, you've been freed. That's what James used this word for earlier on in the text, that is what James is using it here, right? This, this normal usage where your faith, your genuine saving faith in what Jesus did has helped you avoid <clears throat> and not be punished by God. And what is this verse saying about genuine saving faith, right? What good, this is what it says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Is that type of faith genuine saving faith? James is contrasting genuine saving faith with something counterfeit. And the point he's making here in this verse is the second observation that genuine saving faith will reveal itself in works. Genuine, real, Effective, saving, non counterfeit faith will reveal itself in works. My wife, Casey, for Christmas one year, her birthday or Mother's Day, um, there was this type of bag she wanted, right? Kind of this handbag uh, that she wanted and she was excited about. Um, and man, she's an amazing wife, right? Uh, and, and so we wanted, I wanted to give her this deal that she wanted. And so for Christmas, she had asked for this thing. And she, at some point, actually received two of these bags, okay? These kind of designer bags. She got one from somebody. I don't know who it is, but the, so it's okay. None of you, okay? She got another from me. I'd saved up some wedding money, right? And then I had either, I think what I did is I tricked her. Because I think we went to uh, the city one time and we walked past this store. And I'm like, babe, why don't we just go in and look? What color do you want, right? And then I think I went home and ordered it. So for Christmas, she got two different bags. She got one from somebody else. Then she got one from me. When? Here's the deal with these bags. When you get one of these bags, if in the course of this bag's life it gets a tear, it gets a splotch, you can take it and they'll either repair it or give you a free one. And so both of these bags in the course of their life had a few things happen, right? By the same brand, same maker. One from one person, one from me. So one time we went into the city because the bag had a little tear, the zipper was a little off. And we're like, I'm like, babe, let's bring them fancy bags and get these fixed, so, we're on the upper east side, feeling very manhattany. We're somewhere high up on Madison Avenue. We walk into this designer bag store. Somebody in a very euro tailored vest opens it up and says, "Good day. Would you like some champagne?" I'm like, "Babe, we ain't at white's diner anymore, like, right?" So, We walk in, and my wife's so sweet. She says, I got this bag, and I got this bag. Remember, this bag's from somebody else. This bag's from me. And she said, you know, it's the zip. And so this person looks at the bag, and they say, ma'am, I've got to tell you something. (laughs) It's not how they talked, but it makes the story better, right? They're like, this bag, the bag I gave her. She's like, we'll take care of this bag. But ma'am, this bag is fake. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. And they're like, they're looking at us like, you bought this somewhere down on Canal Street for $1.50 and a free pretzel, and you're trying to get a new bag. And then they said to us, this is how we know that the bag's fake. Don't worry, not many people know this. I'm like, let's just get the champagne and run out the door, right? They say, this bag is real because the straps are a certain strap size. And if you look here in the bag, you'll see this little thing. This bag strap size we don't make because it's fake, right? It's not real. It's counterfeit, right? A a counterfeit bag of this type will have a certain strap and no logo. The real bag of this type is going to have a bigger strap And the logo, and that's kind of what James is saying. What James is saying is counterfeit faith, fake faith isn't going to have any works. But real, genuine, saving faith is going to have some works. Genuine, saving faith, the real thing, is going to reveal itself in works. Which then raises this really, really important question The question of, well, okay, does that mean that this is what saves us? Does that mean then that this is like an essential part of the ingredient in order for me to be saved? Now, we never want to read one verse in isolation. I'll be honest with you. We can read a few verses out of James in isolation and we could make that argument. If we're not careful, we can read a few verses and we say that like, well, actually, I guess this is what saves us. Never read just one Bible verse if there's other Bible verses that speak to the issue because you can get confused. You know what does that? Cults. Cults. I, I, I actually could. Whatever you want me to argue for you, literally anything, I could pick me a book of the Bible, a verse of the Bible. I could argue that. I promise you. You pick the most random thing, like elephants are angels. Man, I'll find me a Bible verse and I'll argue it. And I'll play soft music and I'll make you cry. Okay? (laughs) If anybody ever tries to make you believe something based only on one verse, when there's other verses that speak to that that they're not talking about, it's either be careful. It's either a cult or it's heresy, or it's just not wise. There's not just one verse that tries to answer this question like, well, Smith, are you saying that works then save us? There's lots of verses that speak into this. James, Jesus' brother, wrote this about 30 or 40 years after Jesus' murder and resurrection and going back to heaven. Later on, a pastor, a guy named Paul, started to flesh out this more and write to it. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9, if you don't know, if you're new to Christianity or you've been a Christian a while and you don't know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, uh, man, you, you need to know it. If you're not a Christian, you're trying to figure out, man, what do Christians believe? How's this? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. This is helpful for us to play this out. Here is what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. For by grace you have been saved. Genuine saving faith, forgiveness of sin. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When we look at the totality of what the Bible says about works and genuine faith and faith, we read this along with James. And what it's saying is this. Here's what saves you. You know what saves you? It's not your faith. What saves you is God's grace. God's grace is what saves you. You receive that through faith. And then when your faith intersects with God's faithfulness and grace, God says, Man, you're forgiven. You're righteous. What Paul makes clear is it is not of works, lest anybody should boast. Not works. Faith responding to God's grace. Not works. But, not but, I did that same transition. Not but. What's really interesting then is in the next verse, what Paul is trying to say is the exact same James is saying. In verse 10, he says this. For we are his work, right? You're not saved by works. But then he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. In them. What Paul is saying is exactly what James is saying is, look, it is not works that save you. You're saved as your faith responds to God's grace. After you are saved, after you are Christian, what you need to understand is God has specifically designed you and architected you and created you in a special way to do special things that nobody else can do. He prepared beforehand, as He was creating you, before He created you, you, and architected you to do something that He has for only you to do. And the works that He has had for you, man, is like a hand in glove with the way in which He has made you. We're not saved by works, but what Paul's saying is what James is saying, once we are genuinely saved, we will do works. And this is a cliche, but it's kind of helpful, right? We are not saved by deeds, but we are saved for deeds. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved then to do good works. Here's the third observation when we read these verses in their totality. What James is telling us about genuine saving faith is this. Our works are not what save us, but instead, they indicate our existing faith in God's grace, which is what saves us. Our works are not what save us. And then James is going to be a good preacher, and he's going to use an illustration, right? Good preachers want to use illustrations to unpack their point. And James was Jesus's. When I use illustrations, if you've ever listened to me for more than like two sermons, here's what you'll know. My my kids are pretty much all grown up now. So, you know, stories about when they were four, I can barely remember that, right? So my illustrations, you will notice, are about one of two things, right? First thing is pretty recent, about my yellow lab puppy Ford right? He is ripe for illustrations. So, you know, I'm not Jesus's brother. So my illustrations are about my yellow lab or my illustrations are about food. If you come to Calvary, you're going to hear illustrations either about a yellow lab or about food. Speaking of food, I got to just get this out. There's somebody here. I've used illustrations about Zupardi's, a pizza in West Haven. Anybody here ever been to Zupardi's? I love when I use that illustration, and like two days later, people from you guys are texting me photos of you at Zoo parties. Somebody who actually is in this room went to Zoo parties like two nights ago, and they didn't listen to their pastor. Because what I try to tell you is when you go to Zoo parties, get the sausage pie. Get the sausage pie. Somebody in this room went to Zoo parties, and they didn't get the sausage pie. I think they're in sin. I don't know what to do about it, right? My illustrations are going to be about yellow lab puppies. There's you party, sausage pie or something. But James, Jesus' brother, is going to illustrate this point with two different characters from the Old Testament, right? He's a lot more spiritual. I mean, he's like, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reinforce this. I'm going to illustrate this with two characters from the Old Testament. Abraham, who's like the granddaddy of uh, the Jews' faith, who were the original readers of this, and then the second illustration is a prostitute named Rahab. He's using both those characters to make the exact same point. So we're only going to talk about um, Abraham, okay? And, and this is the pothole that we could fall into. So let me read to you the illustration of Abraham, and then let's not make sure we fall in the pothole. Here's the illustration. He's made the point that, then he illustrates with Abraham, verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar now, if you 're familiar with what the theological term "justified can mean, you start to hear that, and a little little buzzer starts to go off like ah, 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 right pothole warning. Was not our father uh, Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture that was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And then this is the pothole. If you're familiar, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, we're going to talk about what justified means. So if you don't know, you're about to know in 47 seconds. But if you're familiar with one meaning, you read this and you're like, whoa, Like, what is going on? Like, wait, wait, we just heard, we'll talk about it, but if you're familiar with it, right now you're thinking, Maybe you're not thinking that, but maybe you're thinking like, ooh, this is confusing. There was a guy named Martin Luther. He was a Catholic priest. And last Sunday was not just trunk or treat here at Calvary or Halloween. It was also Reformation Day. Did you know that? Did you know it was Reformation Day? It was Reformation Day because Martin Luther, who was this priest on that date, uh, decided he had concerns about some of the theology of Catholicism, and he wanted to start a conversation. So he banged this, this memo on a door, and it started everything. It Reformation Day. I always find it interesting. I, got, I think I got away with this in the first service, so I'll go with this. I always find, and don't, please, I'm a... I'm a frail pastor. Don't email me if you don't like this illustration. But it is an interesting point I'm going to make. I always find it interesting, whatever conviction you have about Halloween is cool. But I always find it interesting when some Christians have a conviction not to celebrate Halloween. And so they're like, we don't dress up. We don't celebrate Halloween. I'm like, okay, cool. You go past their house and you see the little kids toddling around in a costume getting candy. And you're like, well, wait, what are you doing? And they're like, pastor, I don't celebrate Halloween. We're dressing up to celebrate Reformation Day. I'm like, isn't your kid just dressed up going to get candy from their neighbors? Yes, but it's Reformation Day, not Halloween. Martin Luther was the guy that started Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, scholarship is, is divided, but he did not like this verse. And there's some scholars that will say he didn't like it so much, he actually didn't think James should be in the Bible because he thought it wasn't accurate. That doesn't seem to be the depth of his dislike, but, but he didn't like that. Because this phrase, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, pothole. So we need to make sure we don't get our theological alignment out of order. So to understand this, if you haven't had a swig of coffee, swig of coffee. We're going for it. Here we go. Two things to make sure we don't get our theological alignment out of whack on this is to understand what is justified mean and to understand the sequence of what actually happened in Abraham's life. Justified has two different meanings theologically. The meaning that Paul always uses is justified. Well, it doesn't have two different meanings. It means to be declared righteous. Okay, That is the theological meaning of the word justified. It's not the TV show that was on Netflix. It's a theological word that means declared righteous. But there's two different ways that term has nuances and plays itself out. The first is this. When somebody responds in faith to what they understand about Jesus, in that moment, Boom, person has faith. I believe in Jesus. They are in that moment declared righteous, where God says, "You are righteous, I'm declaring you to be righteous, you're forgiven. Boom. Got it? There's a second meaning of what justifies. Second nuance, second way it's played out, right? This idea of being declared righteous which is what James is doing. It means when you look at something in the past and you see what somebody's doing now and you declare that, yes, they must be forgiven. They must be in a relationship with God. They must be righteous because I'm looking at how they're behaving and I'm saying that it must be linked to something in the past. Have you ever seen anybody pop a shoulder back in? Ever had a dislocated shoulder? I've not. If you've watched Lethal Weapon, you've seen about 5,000 shoulders popped in. Here's what happens with a dislocated shoulder. It pops out. So you're like, ah, my shoulder's out, right? You go to the ER. When you go to the ER, the doctor is going to apply a little bit of traction. Now, this may not be fully medically accurate, but this is the gist, okay? Doctor applies some traction, they find a med student nearby or a nursing student, my med student who's like young, first day in the ER, right? And they're like, med student, come over here. I'm gonna apply traction. Then you take the shoulder and you pop it. And the med student's sweating, right? They want their mommy, they want their grandma. And you pull the traction and you pop it in And the doctor says, boom, your shoulder's better. Your shoulder's better. I'm declaring in this moment because I just made it better, your shoulder's better. But a doctor can also tell you your shoulder's better in a different context. When you go to them two weeks after the shoulder's been out of socket, it's back in socket, and he's like, hey, why don't you wiggle your shoulder? And you do like this. And he's like, oh, look, I'm looking at how you're able to move your shoulder. I'm looking at what you're doing, and I'm able to say that your shoulder is better. Sometime in the moment when the doctor, pop, will say, your shoulder's better. Other times, the doctor will watch you use your shoulder and say, oh, your shoulder's better. Not because they made it better then, but because they have watched what you're doing and because of what you're doing, they realize it must be better. Those are the two different uses for the word justified. In the moment made better and made right, boop, or looking at what you're doing and saying, Yeah, you're justified. Yeah, you must be forgiven. You must be righteous. I'm declaring that to be true because I'm looking at the way that you're acting. Paul uses number one. James here is using number two. The sequence of this is also important, okay? So Because you read this, and the first thing James mentions chronologically is he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Verse 21. When you read that in isolation, you're like, wait, that must be the first event that occurred that caused that to happen. And then later on, it says in verse 23, Abraham believed God and counted his righteousness. I don't know why, but James inverts the sequence. The very first thing that happens in Genesis 15. Abraham responds in faith to God. And the Bible says that it was credited to him as righteousness, that when he responded to God in that moment, justified. Then later in his life, like seven or eight chapters later, he then, because of that faith, is willing to do this act with his son because of the existing faith that he already has. And what James is saying is this. James is not saying that Abraham's willingness to do that act, that that work is what declared him in the moment, first time, to be righteous. What James is saying is, look, way back here, there was faith in God. And when there is a faith in God, boom, in that moment, I'm declaring you to be righteous. And Abraham's later good work of willing to trust God with Isaac proved, showed, that Abraham was a righteous man. James is using this illustration to reinforce force his first point that genuine saving faith, genuine saving faith will reveal itself in works. Genuine saving faith will reveal itself in works. So, here's the question. Does that necessarily mean that if you look at somebody and they're nice in line and let you go ahead of them at stop and shop because you just got a thing of milk and they got 42 carts and they do a nice good work, Does that necessarily mean that just because they do that nice, good work, then they're saved, right? There's some sort of philosophical logic out there. I was not a philosophy major. I was a pre-med major until I hit organic chemistry, and I realized, ooh, I'm not that, I'm not smart enough for this. Philosophy was, like, kind of complicated. So sociology, I thought, you know, you just read about things and argue every day. I loved it. It was great, right? But there's some philosophy deal out there that's like, all pigs like to sleep, I like to sleep, ergo, I'm a pig. Have you ever heard that, right? All pigs, I mean, usually it's about you, but that would be rude to call you pigs. All pigs like to sleep, I like to sleep, ergo, I'm a pig. And it's what James is saying, Is what can be extrapolated from this, this logic that, well, genuine faith will result in works, This person was nice to me at the grocery store and had works, ergo, they necessarily must have genuine faith, right? Is that, can we make that leap? And what James says is, no. He's going to try to address that, right? And and he responds to this in this hypothetical way where this is exactly what this person is hypothetically arguing in verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works, verse 18. What, What this person is trying to say is this, bro. Okay, James, I'm tracking with you, but what I'm so it's all if I have one, then that's all that matters. James? Got fine. You got faith, boom, you're good. Your sins are forgiven. And James, but if I have works without that faith, then that's just as good, right? My sins are forgiven. I'm okay. And what James tries to say is look, these two things can't stand alone like that. This is not, I like to sleep, pig sleep, therefore I'm a pig. Okay. And so what James does is he responds to that to try to draw them back in the next part of this verse. And he says this, Show me your faith apart from your works. And this is, James, is like, the point is never to separate these. This is the point, James. I will show you my faith by my works. It's not stand alone. Works don't stand alone to prove faith or belief independent of a claim of faith or belief. Faith leads to works but works do not necessarily prove faith. Faith leads to works, but works do not necessarily prove faith. My wife works at Chick-fil-A. Okay? Uh, And um, I've actually... uh, you know, when they were really busy during COVID, we're friends with the guy who owns Wallingford. She was like, Smith, I'm drowning. I need help. I just, I'm drowning. So he conned me into like during COVID on my day off, right, or on a Saturday to go up there and help do some stuff. Anybody here ever been to Chick-fil-A? Well, in this bag, <clears throat> I have an amazing Chick-fil-A cookie. Anybody here ever made a Chick-fil-A cookie? I have actually made Chick-fil-A cookies. Well, yeah. First service, clap for that, <laughs> which highly offended me because they ain't never clapped for me preaching, right? I'm like, y'all are going to clap for me making a chocolate chip cookie, but yap it up here for you. Okay, this is a Chick-fil-A cookie. Let me tell you a few things, except for catering. Anytime you go into a Chick-fil-A or get Chick-fil-A to go, make a mobile over Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A cookie will always be in this bag. It will always be in this bag where in the back of the bag is a sticker that says, Mmm. Okay? So if you open up this bag, every cookie that comes from Chick-fil-A, except for catering, is going to be in this bag with a sticker that you open up, and you open up this lovely, delightful, hot, fresh Chick-fil-A cookie. Oh. But here's the trick, right? Th- what is this? This is a Chick-fil-A cookie. But, but this is the trick, right? Let me just share another little bit of piece of information with you. This is a piece of asparagus. Okay? Just because you put something into the Chick-fil-A cookie bag does not automatically make it a Chick-fil-A cookie. Okay? Any Chick-fil-A cookie that you get except for catering is going to be within a Chick-fil-A bag and you pull it out and that's a Chick-fil-A cookie. But just because you put something into a Chick-fil-A bag does not mean that that then becomes a Chick-fil-A cookie. And that's exactly what James is saying is this, every person with genuine faith is going to have works, but not every person with works is going to have genuine faith. Every person with genuine faith is going to have works. Every Chick-fil-A cookie is going to come out of the wrapper, but not every person with works has genuine faith. Just because you put it in the wrapper doesn't make it a Chick-fil-A cookie. This is the fourth observation that says this, good works alone in isolation do not mean that there is genuine saving faith. Good works alone in isolation do not mean that there is genuine saving faith. And then there's one last final point that James is gonna make here about, about faith and about saving. He kind of shifts it just a little bit, I think, right? I could be mistaken, but other commentators, uh, I, I'm with them in this. And, and then here's the last point James is gonna make that we're gonna pull out of this for this morning is this. Verse Verse 15. <clears throat> If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here's what James is saying. If someone comes up to you, I mean, it reads it, right? If someone comes up to you and says, I'm hungry. Like, bro, can I have a nibble of that Chick-fil-A cookie? I'm starving. I haven't eaten. And you say to them, I'm sorry you're hungry. Be filled. Jim's like, man, that's empty words. My children and my family freeze to death in my house because I do not want to pay $700 for my heating bill. Especially now, I guess it's going up 452 billion percentage over last year, right? So I'm cold. If when my sweet family member comes up to me and is like, I'm so cold at this house. And I say to them, beest thou warm. <clears throat> They're still freezing cold because it's just words that aren't doing anything to help meet their need. And I think what James is doing here is he's, he's switching a little, little bit, another layer, and he's saying, look, we're, l- I'll give you the fact that you have genuine saving faith. If you then have genuine saving faith, though, right, we're not trying to discern that with a counterfeit. What I'm simply saying is when you hear about a need and you don't do anything about it, what good is that? Because then it's just words. It doesn't make a difference. It's worthless. I'm reading through the Gospel of Luke. Every Gospel, every biography of Jesus was written by a different person for a different purpose to a different audience. And I'm enjoying why Luke and who he wrote and his writing style. And here's the thing. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus always stops. Jesus always engages. Even in the moments when in the moment he doesn't engage, he's still working behind the scenes to fix it. Right? Jesus hears of a need. Someone comes up with a spiritual question. Someone comes up with a physical burden. Jesus stopped. And Jesus engaged. And Jesus cared. And what James is saying is, if my brother lived a life like that, and you claim to be followers of my brother, then you need to live a life like that. Because when you as a follower of Jesus, James is saying, hear of a need of someone around you who's in brokenness, who's in despair, who's in discouragement, who has physical needs, who has financial needs, who just something in our culture that isn't right. And when you said I'm sorry to hear that, I hope it's better. doesn't really help meet the need, does it? You're telling the freezing family hope you're warmer, but you're not getting off your duff to turn up the thermostat. Here's The fifth observation about saving faith is this. Genuine saving faith without accompanying works is not as impactful as it could be. And if you had the app, you could type that right in it. Genuine saving faith without accompanying works is not as impactful as it could be. This morning, we've dug into a passage. We've eaten a four-inch New York strip. We've worked our way through it because I don't want you to hit a theological pothole and be confused about what this section actually means. And we've pulled some different things about it, right? What we've seen this morning is these five observations about genuine faith, that James is contrasting genuine saving faith with something counterfeit. We've seen that genuine saving faith will reveal itself in works, that our works are not what save us, Instead, they indicate our existing faith in God's grace, which is what saves us. We've seen that good works alone do not mean that there is genuine saving faith. And then the last observation we have pulled this morning is that genuine saving faith without accompanying works is not as impactful as it could be. We have learned together a little bit about God's word. But what we said in the beginning of James is Jesus' brother wrote this to Christians not just so they would know the right things, but so that they would do the right things. This knowledge, you got to know this because we could end up sideways thinking it's our works that justify us when it's not. It's important to know this, but ultimately what we've also said in James is our time together, our time in the Word is not just about information, it's about Transformation. So then the question becomes, well, what do we do with this? What what handles can we put on this when we leave here today, when we wake up tomorrow morning? And and here's the first. I'm just going to give you three kind of application takeaways. The worship team can come up here as as I'm saying this, and then we'll sing and call it a day. If you're a Christian, God has, like we said in Ephesians 2.10, specifically designed you for a particular work and a particular role that he wants you to play. There is something in your sphere of influence. There is something in your family. There is something around you. There is something in the culture that he has wired you before you were created. He designed you to meet that need. And for some of you, I want you to be encouraged by that. If you're not a Christian, God's designed you. If you are a Christian, God's designed you. If you're a Christian, I want you to be discouraged by that. It's not about us like a junior high cotillion sitting on the sidelines watching everybody dance in the middle. It's about us getting involved in the dance and the way in which God made us for the good of his kingdom. And I want to encourage you in something. Whatever your story is, if you're a Christian, man, that's part of your story that God can redeem and God can leverage for the good of his kingdom and for his glory. You're not guilty anymore. And I think sometimes what we think is, I have this deal in my past, my story's over, I can't do it. Yeah, that, that, that there may be some time to get over it, but look if this, if, if this is about having something in your past that means God can't use it we would not be reading the New Testament. Because the dudes who wrote this book, scoundrels in their past. But God worked through their gifts and their past and their repentance and their restoration to help them have a huge impact. Every single one of you who believes in Jesus has been designed specifically for a specific purpose. I want you to be encouraged by that. And second thing is I want you to be prayerful to discern what that might be. Prayerful to discern what that might be. Second thing is this. Is there brokenness around you? Is there hurt around you? Is there a need around you? Is there something that's not right around you? Is there something that doesn't reflect God's kingdom around you? And if there is, are you just sitting there saying, be warm? Or are you doing something about it? For some of us, maybe it's time for us to stop talking, and it's time for us to start doing to meet and to serve and to love and to care and to fill the gap. And the third thing is this, the third thing is this, aren't you glad that according to James and throughout the Bible that what makes you right with God doesn't depend upon how good you are? Aren't you glad that what gives you strength for today and hope for tomorrow is not how good you are on your best day, but it's what Jesus did for you on his worst day? Wouldn't it be terrible if you got to heaven and God's like, all right, let's see if you're good enough. Well, you know, nice to the old lady, cussed when you dropped the avocado, tough call. <clears throat> the pressure's off. Pressure's off. So don't keep putting the pressure on yourself. And sometimes we're not grateful to Jesus for that. And so here's the final kind of practical takeaway is this. tomorrow morning, When you get up, some of you drink coffee. How many of you drink coffee? Raise your hand. Yes! How many of you say, I hate coffee, I drink tea? Okay. How many of you are like, I saw on Facebook I should start with warm water to cleanse my intestines? How many of you drink warm water? Okay. Whatever you drink tomorrow morning, coffee, tea, orange juice, milk, water, here's what I want you to do. When you're pouring that coffee into your coffee mug, you know what I want you to do? I want you to make that a moment of worship. Where that becomes a moment that you trigger your mind, wait, 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 it's not up to me. Jesus paid it all. When you come tomorrow morning and you have your coffee or your orange juice or your milk, I want in that moment it to be a trigger for you to say, Jesus paid it all and to thank him. What we've seen today, we've learned a lot of theology, but you know what? We've got some practical things. There's a purpose for you. I want you to be encouraged by that, and I want you to be prayerful about that. I want you to think about what's broken around you and how has God wired you to help fix the solution for the good of his kingdom. And I want us to be people who are thankful to Jesus. And tomorrow morning when that first sip of coffee hits your mouth, make it a moment just to pray and to thank Jesus that you're not guilty anymore and that Jesus paid it all. And we have the hope of that because Jesus put death in his grave. And so together as a community, we're going to sing. And so I'd invite you to stand and take your seats as the worship team prepares to lead us in our last song today.